0: Well, welcome, everybody, to the Heritage Foundation. My name is John Malcolm. I am the Vice President of the Institute for Constitutional uh, Government here, and we're delighted to have you here uh, for this event, which, by the way, is being co hosted uh, by the Claire Booth Luce uh, Center for Conservative Women, so we're delighted uh, that they agreed to partner with us on this. So this is an important time in our nation's history. We are delighted uh, to be joined by uh, Senator Cruz. Uh, I will not give him the elaborate introduction that he richly deserves, uh, but he does know a thing or two about the Constitution, having argued uh, nine cases before uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, And you had, I know, the privilege of clerking for the last chief justice to preside uh, over a president impeachment trial, and now you're going to be a juror in uh, looks like in uh, in one of the impeachment uh, trials. So let's get right to it. So so several prominent Democrats uh, have said that the president welcomed interference by foreign governments in the 2016 election, that he has invited uh, interference in the 2020 election, and that he ha- what he has done is far worse than anything Richard Nixon or any other president uh, has ever done before. What's your reaction to that? Well, I don't think that rhetoric should surprise
1: us, uh, because we have seen Democrats using that rhetoric for three years now. Uh, they used that same rhetoric when Donald Trump was elected. Uh, they pledged impeachment from almost the minute he was elected, before he was swearing in. sworn in. Democrats uh, were publicly on record calling for his impeachment. Um, I think what we've seen in the House of Representatives, listen, partisan politics is not a new occurrence in Washington, but the behavior in the House has reached a, a new low. Because what has occurred there is is utterly devoid From facts utterly devoid from evidence Um, For two years Democrats were saying they wanted to impeach the president over Russia and we heard Russia 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 The Mueller report was going to come Robert De Niro on Saturday Night Live playing Bob Mueller promised he's got the goods. He's got him and then that wasn't true Uh, then Almost immediately, uh, Democrats shifted to Ukraine. And what's funny is is their rhetoric is is virtually identical. Uh, It it reminds me a little bit of of George Orwell's 1984, where they just switched out the talking points, and and now it's we're at war with Eurasia. We've always been at war with Eurasia. And and there is no operative truth from before that moment. And look, I think the, the underlying facts involving Ukraine one of the smartest things the White House did was release the transcript. You know, there were initially these fevered accusations about what the president had said to Zelensky. And and the White House, I think, responded to it powerfully by saying, here's the transcript, this is exactly what was said. And it turned out what the Democrats were promising uh, was not, in fact, what had happened. And the president, in particular, had asked Ukraine to do two things in the course of that conversation. One, investigate possible Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. And two, investigate potential corruption regarding Burisma, the largest natural gas company in Ukraine, that that, that had, had paid Hunter Biden, the son of the vice president, very substantial amounts of money to serve on the board. That is the entire predicate of the House case. But what's fascinating also is that we've seen, I I think the last week was a very consequential week in impeachment. I think there were two very big developments. One was the Inspector General report, and we had a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee last week on that, and I imagine a little bit later today we'll talk in greater depth about the Inspector General report. But I'll tell you that report was nothing less than chilling in the abuse of power that it described in the Department of Justice and FBI. Uh, the second big development was the House rolled out its articles of impeachment. Now the reason that was such a big development is the House ended up retreating from almost every claim that House Democrats had made for the past several months. You may, you may remember, oh, what, three or four weeks ago, uh, when House Democrats all began using the word bribery, and, and, and there were some press stories about why they did It's actually, it, it, if it weren't so cynical, it'd be funny. Uh, the Democratic campaign committee in the House polled it, did focus groups, and they discovered bribery is really bad. Like when they did focus groups, people didn't like bribery. And so the talking points went out, and every Democrat began, look, there's a message discipline where they all began saying bribery, bribery, bribery. Okay, look, bribery is really bad. There's a reason it, it is a serious felony. Well, you fast forward to the actual articles of impeachment, and they didn't
0: impeach the president
1: for well, bribery. What I think
0: about it, I wanna, you've touched on many things that I want to... Uh, ask you about, and let's start with the Articles of Binance. So you're right, they were talking about bribery, We were hearing quid pro quo, you would hear the even more menacing term extortion, Uh, yet none of that is in Article 1 of uh, the resolutions that they're going to be voting on tomorrow. So so what do you make of, let's start with Article 1, the abuse of of power? uh, uh, They couldn't prove their case.
1: I, I think it is an admission of almost complete defeat. So the two Articles of Impeachment, they don't include a single crime. Uh, and and you know there there was a tell. You and I played poker together. Uh, a, as you know, in poker, a tell is is when someone has a bad hand and, and they indicate it. They twist their ring or they pull on their hair. Or they do something to show they've got a bad hand. That's a tell. I would
0: do right.
1: Um, my bank account appreciates that, John. <laughs>
0: um,
1: there was an incredible tell from the Democrats, because they put out, I think it's two weeks ago now, a, uh, what they called a scholarly report, 55 pages, laying out their legal arguments why they did not need to prove a crime. That for impeachment, you had to demonstrate no criminal offense, you, had to, you did not have to demonstrate any criminal law was violated, you didn't have to demonstrate any federal law was violated. That they argued you could literally impeach a president, who even if he didn't have a speeding ticket, they could impeach him. Now that standard was on its face lawless. And Donald Trump, when the House votes tomorrow, assuming they vote to impeach, will be the first president in history who is impeached without an article claiming a criminal violation. And and ultimately, so they've called it abuse of power. By the way, abuse of power, there's no federal statute that makes abuse of power, what they've called it, a criminal offense. They've just made this up. And and there's some interesting constitutional history. Because what the Democrats are doing is they're engaging in a partisan process. But there is actually a legal standard at play here. And it is the legal standard uh, of impeachment that the Constitution sets out which is impeachment, lies, for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Now one of the things very revealing in in that list in the Constitution is the word other. Other means that treason and bribery are themselves high crimes and misdemeanors, and there's a basic principle of legal interpretation which any first-year law student can tell you, which is when you have a series of items in a list, with a broader catch-all at the end, that you interpret them to be of a similar kind in nature. In other words, that high crimes and misdemeanors are serious offenses on the order of, of the nature of, treason and bribery. They're not simply disagreement. And if you drill in a little more, so I was rereading some of the the history of the impeachment clause. It's actually quite interesting. And, and the first draft of the Constitution had impeachment for malpractice or neglect of duty. So that was the first draft. By the way, under that standard, the Democrats might have had a much better argument. Malpractice or neglect of duty doesn't require criminal offense. It was a pretty broad standard was the first draft. Then the committee of detail changed that to treason, bribery, or corruption. So that's the second version of the impeachment language. Then the Committee of Eleven changed that just to treason or bribery, so they took out corruption. Then during the constitutional debates, George Mason stood up and objected. And he said impeachment for just treason or bribery, that's too narrow. And so George Mason proposed adding maladministration, so that the clause would have read treason, bribery, or maladministration. And, you know, Siri didn't understand it when, when, when it George Mason you. said that. <laughs> <not. laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I'm actually gratified to know that Siri is a Madisonian. <laughs> because when George Mason proposed this, James Madison stood up and objected. And he said, and I'm going to quote from him, James Madison said that maladministration. administration was, quote, so vague a term that it would be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. So Madison argued against maladministration. They struck maladministration, and they replaced it with other high crimes and misdemeanors. That's the history of the clause. Now, why is that relevant? Because the the House Democrats' argument is essentially maladministration. They don't like the job Donald Trump is doing as president. They disagree with his policies. They disagree with just about everything about him. Well, you know, look, there is a remedy. If you disagree with someone politically, if you disagree with someone's policies, the remedy that the Constitution sets up are are called elections. We have them every four years, and you go to the American people and you make your case. And the Democrats are entirely entitled to make the case to the American people that they disagree with his policies or his politics or anything else but they're not entitled to abuse the constitution's impeachment proceeding by impeaching him with no allegation of a crime and no facts or evidence that support that he's committed an impeachable offense.
0: yeah so i've been saying many times that we don't have a parliamentary system we don't have no confidence votes If we had a parliamentary system you didn't like the guy or you didn't like his policies you could vote no confidence he'd be out but we don't have that so let's talk a little bit about the second article uh, of impeachment that strikes me as being very strange or at least very premature so the article charges that quote without lawful cause or excuse president trump directed executive branch agencies offices and officials not to comply with congressional subpoenas yet it was in 2014, it was the Holder Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel, issued an opinion on July 15th in which they said quote, The executive branch's longstanding position, reaffirmed by numerous administrations of both political parties, is that the president's immediate advisors are absolutely immune from congressional testimonial process. This immunity is rooted in constitutional separation of powers and the immunity of the president himself from congressional compulsion to testify. So in light of this, what do you make of this second article, obstruction of Congress? Uh,
1: you, you know, I mentioned a minute ago why article one is so weak. doesn't allege bribery, doesn't allege, doesn't allege a quid pro quo, which, which was the <laughs> earlier talking point. Um, as weak as the first article is, the second article is orders of magnitude weaker. Um, It it, it is a jaw-droppingly weak article. Now, why is that? First of all, it's worth noting what the second article is. So it's obstruction. So media folks report, ooh, obstruction, okay, that's that's bad. Well, hold on a second. It's not obstruction of justice. Obstruction of justice is a crime. That's not what they alleged. Why? Because they can't prove obstruction of justice. Nixon articles alleged obstruction of justice. These articles don't. Clinton, too. Clinton too. Clinton was impeached for obstruction of justice and perjury, both felonies, both federal crimes. Um, this is obstruction of Congress, <laughs> and the predicate for that is that the White House claimed legal privileges for administration employees. Now, now to understand just how ludicrous this is, let's take for example John Bolton. John Bolton. National Security Advisor to President Trump. The House Democrats asked him to testify. John Bolton did something very interesting. His his lawyer, a guy named Chuck Cooper, my, my old boss and a good friend, John Bolton's lawyer went to the D.C. District Court, and he said, the House has requested my client to testify, but the White House, the President's asserting executive privilege and instructing him not to. And so John Bolton's lawyer went to the D.C. District Court and said, Judge, tell me what to do. My client will do whatever you tell him to do. Your Honor, I put myself at the mercy of the court. You tell my client the right path to take. You know what the House did next? Said, never mind. And they went away. They didn't even subpoena John Bolton. They simply said, well, if you're going to ask a court what to do, never mind. No, we don't want your testimony. Contrast that, say, to the Nixon impeachment. Nixon impeachment, the House litigated subpoenas, went to the court to enforce subpoenas. Nixon White House asserted all sorts of privileges, executive privilege. Case went all, was litigated, went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. As y'all will recall, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an order to the Nixon White House, hand over the White House tapes. The tapes that the President had made in the Oval Office. It was within, I think, two days that Nixon resigned, following the Supreme Court order. That, by the way, is the right way to do it. And bipartisan. I mean, It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. But in that instance... Had the president then defied an order from the Supreme Court to hand over materials after the privilege was litigated, you might well be able to put forward an impeachable count of obstruction of Congress. But they haven't done that. They've simply said the mere fact that you assert a privilege is itself impeachable. Without their bothering to issue a subpoena or litigate any of these matters. So it's literally saying a privilege attaches that is impeachable. By the way, if that is impeachable conduct, all 45 presidents we've had in the United States have <laughs> committed impeachable conduct. It, it, it is an absurd standard to say asserting a privilege is a high crime and misdemeanor. And that's, that's, that's what the second count of the House articles. Yeah, we'll be impeaching called. them all in the future then. Uh, get back to John Bolton. in just. Let me make a quick point yeah, on sure, that, by the way. You're right. One of the scary things about this standard, what the House Democrats are doing, is they're just treating impeachment as as a political weapon. Impeachment was meant to be an extraordinary remedy. It was not simply meant to be a tool for one party to attack the other party. And if this becomes the standard, every president going forward will be impeached. Whenever the House is in the opposing party.
0: Yeah, it's only been done 19 times in our nation's history. I mean, it's a, It is supposed to be a sober and somber and rare event. So you, you mentioned before about uh, Russian collusion, obstruction of justice with the Mueller investigation. So when I've been having discussions about this, people bring it up and sort of tie it all up. Yet it, it's not in either of the articles uh, that the House will vote on tomorrow. Do you nope. expect this to come up in the Senate? trial at all or what will happen if it does come up in the senate trial any any thoughts on that mm.
1: well here, here's how i think the senate trial is likely to proceed <laughs> we're going to see articles of impeachment in all likelihood voted out tomorrow they will be delivered to the senate uh, there are standing rules in the senate on impeachment that govern impeachment govern impeachment of the president when the senate receives those articles of impeachment the first thing they do is they serve notice on the president and they serve notice on the Chief Justice of the United States, who, under the Constitution, will preside over the trial. Um, I think the actual trial, in all likelihood, will be in early January. Uh, If I were to guess a date, I would guess January 6th, which is the first Monday in January, I think is a likely start date. Um, And the way it will proceed is you will have first, you will have, The House of Representatives and the House Managers file briefs. You will have the White House file briefs. So they will start with legal arguments in writing, and then the trial in all likelihood will proceed. Well, the very first thing that happens is the Chief Justice swears in all 100 Senators as jurors. And there's a specific oath that the Senators take to do justice impartially. Uh, Then what's likely to happen is the House Managers will present their case, after which the White House team will present its case. Now, one of the things that's interesting is the Senate rules provide that senators cannot speak in open session. That means you're not going to be turning on C-SPAN and seeing any of us doing withering cross-examination or incompetent cross-examination. As much fun as it might be to go 15 rounds with Elizabeth Warren
0: (laughs) in the trial,
1: which I would be more than happy to do... Um, under the Senate rules, that can only happen in closed session, which means when the TV cameras are off. So all 100 senators will be in our seats. We're also not required, not allowed to have like electronic devices, which is liable to hospitalize half of You'll us. You'll see some people shaking. <laughs> um, and by the way, we are required to be there on penalty of prison. The Sergeant at Arms is empowered to come and put us in leg irons and, and put us in our in our desks if we are not there. Um, and I think the trial is likely to last anywhere from two to six weeks. Um, I think two weeks is, is likely the shortest it will go. Uh, the Clinton impeachment trial went six weeks. This could easily go six, seven weeks if, if it gets drawn out.
0: So let me okay. ask you about that. It's skipping ahead a couple of questions. I'll come back uh, in a moment. But you've, now you've talked about the trial and you were talking about John Bolton. Obviously, some people have been calling for a long drawn out trial with... You know, Hunter Biden and the whistleblower and Adam Schiff and, and, and Senator Schumer has sent a letter demanding that, among others, Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton uh, be called to, to testify. So you, you've given a prognostication on how long, when you think the trial will begin and how long you think it will go. What is that trial going to look like? Sure. What should it look
1: like? Well, let me say Chuck Schumer's letter was ridiculous on its face. Um, on many levels. Uh, number one, he asked for a series of, of witnesses that, that Senate Democrats wanted to call, and he made a threat. And his threat was to Mitch McConnell, if you don't agree to this, I'll get Nancy Pelosi not to send over the articles of impeachment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? <laughs> <What> a- <laughs> Do you, do you remember blazing saddles? Uh, yeah. It's like putting a gun to your head. If you don't do what I want, I'll pull the trigger. I mean, that's what Schumer, I, I've got a suggestion. Carry out your threat. Come on, Chuck, show us. It's not a bluff. Carry out your threat and hold the articles of impeachment. Let me suggest a date until November of 2020. And then we've got a different event that can resolve these issues. So that's his threat on the face of it. But his underlying substance, he lists a bunch of witnesses that he wants to call, including John Bolton, including Mick Mulvaney. Well, let me tell the Senate Democrats something right now. You can try to call every single one of those witnesses in the House of Representatives. You've got a proceeding going on right now. Nancy Pelosi, there's no reason they have to vote tomorrow. If they don't believe they've developed their factual record, they have every tool at their disposal to say, gosh, Chuck Schumer's given me a list of five, four witnesses we want. We're going to go get those witness testimony. And by the way, there's a step you do for that. It's not the step they took with John Bolton, which is going to the court and saying, never mind, we don't want him. The step is you s- issue a subpoena, right. and then you go to court and you litigate to enforce that subpoena. And, and we've seen in past practice, that doesn't take years, that typically takes a couple of months.
0: They could do that. And the House actually, at some of these, in the instances in which they were trying to enforce these opinions, they were actually getting favorable rulings from the lower courts. But
1: the House has every tool. And by the way, the House proceedings were blatantly one-sided. It it, it was a a partisan show trial. Why do I say that? The White House wasn't allowed to cross-examine witnesses. Or even have notice of the witnesses, typically with much more than 24 hours' notice. And the Republicans were not allowed to call their own witnesses. So it was entirely a one-sided evidentiary case. You only call the prosecution's witnesses, we don't call the defense witnesses. In any other trial, they'd be thrown out immediately on the face of it. Both sides get to call their witnesses. So Schumer's idea that, well, let's make the Senate a, a fishing expedition for all the witnesses Democrats want. If they want witnesses, postpone the vote tomorrow. Subpoena the witnesses and let them come before the House. They're not going to do that because it's a political exercise. The facts don't matter. So I don't believe Schumer is going to get his request. I think Mitch McConnell said that today. I do think, however, on the other side, there is one side that has been denied a fair hearing. And that is the president. That's the White House. The House Democrats said, no, no, you, you don't get to call your witnesses. So in my view, everything the House did wrong. I hope the Senate does much better. I hope the Senate, and I believe the Senate, we're going to conduct a a fair proceeding. We're going to respect due process unlike how the House did it. Now what does that mean? That means both sides can present their case. The, The House managers, I'm confident, the House managers will be given the opportunity to present their case, to make their arguments, to present whatever evidence in the evidentiary record they have built. They've had a whole series of hearings to build their evidentiary record. They can argue their case in writing and orally. But at the same time, you better believe we're going to let the president present his case. And and that means if the president wants to call witnesses, if the president wants to call Hunter Biden, if the president wants to call the whistleblower, I think the Senate should allow him to do so. I think that's only fair and right. The prosecution has has put their witnesses on already. The defense hasn't had a chance to call a single witness.
0: So let's get into a little bit about, about sort of the underlying... Facts. So mm-hmm. the president said with respect to Ukraine uh, several times in addition to the July 25th call that he had three reasons why he was, why he was hesitant uh, to you know, provide the funds to Ukraine. This is one, that the United States provides too much aid to European countries. Other European countries don't pull their fair share. He's made that statement long before any of this folder all, uh, all came up. Uh, but you had two other things that a number of the witnesses that appeared before the House Intelligence <laughs> Committee mostly career diplomats, referred to as false narratives. Uh, So one was about alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election, and the other was about their intent to go after corruption, including Burisma. And I want to ask you about about each of those. Let's start with Ukraine. So you were actually asked the other day by Chuck Todd about whether you thought the Ukrainians had attempted to interfere in the 2016 election, and you, you said you thought they had, and he Suffice it to say, it was incredulous in his reaction. Yet it struck me when you gave that answer. So right after the president won and before he took the oath of office, for instance, Politico ran an article dated January 11, 2017. Says Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after quietly working. To boost Clinton it's also been widely reported that there was an American Ukrainian American named Alexander Chalupa was working with the Clinton campaign running around Ukraine trying to dig up dirt on Trump and in 2018 a Ukrainian court uh, held that for the express purpose of helping the Clinton campaign a Ukrainian politician named Sergei Lyshenko and the head of the anti-corruption unit a man named Artem Sintek had illegally leaked the so-called black ledgers that showed the payments from a pro-Russian Ukrainian party to Paul Manafort to the Clinton campaign. So, in in light of this, you know, was the president wrong to have a skeptical view about potential Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election and to ask for their assistance to get to the bottom of what actually happened?
1: Well, John, you're obviously a Soviet spy. <laughs> <laughs> you know. One of the bizarre things uh, about the age of Trump, is Donald Trump has broken the media. They're fundamentally broken. They, they, They are shattered husks. There used to be such a thing as journalists. Now they always had some bias, but they used to at least try to report on these things called facts. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, the mainstream media have become Adam Schiff's press secretary. As a consequence, you know, we talked before about how the Democratic talking points have changed so rapidly, and the press is happy to dance to whatever tune. Give me today's talking points, whatever tomorrow is, the press will say exactly the opposite thing tomorrow if they're given those talking points. So let's talk about. 2016 election. So you've got two predicates that the president asked Zelensky to uh, investigate. One was potential 2016 election, the other was corruption in Burisma.
0: I want to get to Burisma in a moment.
1: But but let's stay on the 2016, 2016 election. So let me start out with a simple point. It is indisputable that Russia tried to interfere in our 2016 election, that it was directed from the government, that it was a malign effort, that they used bots, they spread propaganda. They tried to deliberately influence the the election. And by the way, when it comes to standing up to Russia, I am and have been from the day I arrived in the Senate, one of the biggest Russia hawks in the Senate. uh, Part of the sort of amusing talking points is suddenly Democrats have discovered Russia's bad. (laughs) It's really a very funny thing. These same Democrats who... Look, some of us remember, it was actually on ABC News, when, when Obama was sitting with Medvedev and said to a hot mic, tell Vladimir I'll have more, uh, more flexibility after the election. Some of us remember, look, Ukraine, when you had student protesters in the Maiden Square, I, I went to Ukraine, I went to Kiev and stood in the Maiden Square, I met with the protesters and was publicly calling on We should be providing lethal assistance to Ukraine to defend themselves against Russian tanks. They want to defend themselves, but we should be giving them lethal weapons. By the way, what did the Obama administration do on that? Refused to give them lethal weapons, sent them teddy bears, blankets, and MREs. Now, I don't know about you, but in my experience, it's very hard to fight off a tank with a teddy bear. (laughs) What has Trump done on Ukraine? He's actually sent them javelins. Lethal defensive weapons to take out Russian tanks. So you look at the substance of it. But when it comes to election interference, let's, on election interference, yes, Russia, Putin is a KGB thug, Russia tried to interfere with the election. Now here's the game the media is playing right now. Because Russia tried to interfere with the election, the media is pretending nobody else tried to interfere with the election. You know what? Election interference isn't new. Other countries try to interfere in our elections all the time. China tries to, North Korea tries to, and yes, Ukraine tries to. Now, when I said that to Chuck Todd, he immediately lit his hair on fire and began running in circles. He did. Look, the evidence is clear and simple. You went through the facts of it. Okay, the sitting ambassador from Ukraine in 2016, fall of 2016, Wrote, a, wrote an op-ed publicly blasting Donald Trump, the candidate. This is in the middle of the presidential election. And the Ukrainian embassy pushed it out on their official email. Now, just for folks that, like, don't understand, that is really unusual. Sitting ambassadors from foreign countries don't typically take sides in a presidential election. The Ukrainian embassy took an official side and blasted it out. The sitting interior minister of Ukraine publicly blasted Donald Trump during the election. Said it was a a danger to human values or something like that. The former prime minister of Ukraine publicly blasted Donald Trump during the election. Two parliamentarians in Ukraine publicly accused the Ukrainian government of trying to influence the election. All of these are facts. And by the way, the media all know them. These are not new. The story you read from, and and if you want to just read one story, you should read from that Politico story. It's a very detailed Politico expose. It goes into a lot of detail about what happened. By the way, the journalist who wrote it is now a journalist at the New York Times, that famed right-wing outlet. (laughs) So the operative talking point of Democrats in the media is if you refer to facts that were re- written about in Politico and the New York Times and the Economist and the Financial Times if you refer to facts you are a Russian stooge by the way Washington Post officially called me that the day after the Chuck Todd election a Russian stooge never mind that my family was imprisoned and tortured in Fidel Castro's Cuba Never mind that if you come to my office, there's a gigantic painting of Ronald Reagan standing in front of the Brandenburg Gate saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Never mind that today the Senate passed the National Defense Authorization Act that includes my legislation to sanction Russia and stop the Nord Stream 2 to literally take billions of dollars out of the pockets of Putin to be used for military aggression and also to benefit Ukraine. They nonetheless say, simply if you acknowledge the facts that Ukraine, a number of officials in the Ukrainian government, current and former, tried to actively influence our election,
0: that saying that means you're a stooge for Russia. And I assume the president, as a result of that, was acting perfectly reasonably by saying, look, we have these concerns. Tell us what happened here. Help us out here. We know as an
1: unequivocal fact that it is a legitimate governmental objective to investigate foreign interference in the 2016 election. We had an entire independent council and two years and tens of millions of dollars spent investigating potential foreign interference in our election. And by the way, since I use the word potential, the reporters are all freaked out, oh, that means you said they didn't. Yes, Russia interfered in the election. But, but the game, and the reporters play this game. They, they try to ask, ask Republicans, are you saying Ukraine and not Russia interfered? No, we are not saying that. We are saying there are lots of bad actors in the world. And Ukraine was not on the sidelines. They were not ambivalent. And the reason that the press doesn't want to report on it is it's contrary to the narrative. The Dems have a narrative right now. And the media views their job as, we must defend the narrative at all
0: costs. Facts be damned. So let's go on to the second narrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've got some, I don't know that they're up there or not. I've got some, some, just want to run through a basic timeline. So in April of 2014, Hunter Biden's business partner, a guy named Devin Archer, is you named, just say your eyes are much better than mine. Well, I've got it. Mean, I've got it here, fine I, fine. and I've prepared it, so I've, I've got it. Um, he is a, a guy named Devin Archer is appointed to the, Burisma, the the Board of Burisma. Devin Archer and Hunter Biden, by the way, are also partners with then-Secretary of State John Kerry's stepson. So that will, be, that will be significant. Later that month, British Intelligence Authority seized $23 million in accounts in London uh, owned by Mikola Zlochevsky, who was the founder and president of Burisma Holdings. This is two weeks after Devin Archer's on. Less than a month later, about two weeks later, Hunter Biden is named to the Barisma board. As you have said correctly, Devin Archer, Hunter Biden paid millions of dollars. So this is right at the time the $23 million from the founder of Burisma's bank accounts are being stolen, frozen. In December of 2015, that radical right-wing paper, The New York Times, reports that the prosecutor general, the equivalent of our attorney general, Viktor Shokin, is actively investigating Burisma and Zlochevsky. In February of 2016, Zlochevsky's home is raided and his assets are seized. Immediately after that, there are a series of telephone calls, documented telephone calls, between Vice President Biden and Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, Right after that, Burisma's American lobbyist is seeking high-level meetings in the State Department and invoking Hunter Biden's name to have those meetings. Devin Archer has a personal meeting with Secretary of State John Kerry. Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland comes out and publicly says that Victor Shokin should be fired. Then there is the call between Vice President Biden and President Poroshenko, in which Vice President Biden, and you know he bragged about this later, says, "You are not going to get a billion dollars in loan guarantees unless Victor Shokin is fired." And surprise of all surprises, Victor Shokin is fired immediately thereafter, and he has now signed an affidavit that said at the time that he was sacked, he was told that the reason he was fired is because Vice President Biden was not happy about the fact that Burisma was being investigated and that they were going to interview his son Hunter. Now. The Democrats have, of course, portrayed an alternative narrative. He wanted to choke and fired, because he wasn't serious about uh, prosecuting corruption, and they're portraying Vice President Biden, Hunter Biden is as pure as newly fallen snow. But, but just based on this timeline and these facts, it seems to me, you know, was President Trump wrong in concluding? that this was a matter that should be looked into and was there anything wrong with his requesting the Ukrainians to cooperate in that?
1: The central legal and factual predicate that unravels the entirety of the House impeachment Article 1 is that the president and the federal government has a legitimate and Important law enforcement authority to investigate corruption. That is unquestionably the case. And in this instance, the facts were more than sufficient to justify investigating corruption. You know, we just saw last week an Inspector General report where, where all of the Democratic talking heads say, Oh, you just need the tiniest predicate to open an investigation mind you, on the Republican nominee for president in the middle of a presidential campaign. In this instance, so actually just a couple of hours ago, the Joe Biden campaign sent out fundraising emails. uh, Fundraising off of me. And fundraising because I said some of what you just said on Sunday on George Stephanopoulos. And the Joe Biden campaign hyperbolically says, Ted Cruz is running around lying about Uncle Joe. I don't know if they called him Uncle Joe. (laughs) Now, I find it interesting, because I I fully expect the media to to dutifully either ignore everything or to repeat that spin. And, And in fact, I do actually think there may be a formal legal obligation on reporters at every major network that when any reference to Burisma comes up, they must say... This has been debunked, investigated and debunked. I actually think they're like reading a card because they say it with such regularity, including Stephanopoulos, who interrupted me. And went, well, well, this has all been investigated.
0: It's like, well, after you, were almost, as he was letting you go. I mean, it's like he slipped it in. I,
1: so, Joe Biden campaign, their emails say these are lies. Let's talk about truth and lies. Is it a fact that Hunter Biden was paid Anywhere from $50,000 a month to $83,000 a month to work for Burisma, the largest natural gas company in Ukraine. And Joe, since your campaign says, I'm telling lies, let's answer the question directly. Joe, is that a fact or is it false? Was your son paid at least $50,000 a month from Burisma? That's a fact. And I encourage, if it's not, feel free to correct the record. 83,000, the amount, by the way, is in dispute on the public records. $83,000 a month works out to a million dollars a year. To put that in a frame of reference, do you know how much directors at ExxonMobil get paid?
0: Oh, I do, because I watch John Stephanopoulos. (laughs) $110,000 a
1: year is what ExxonMobil pays in cash compensation to its directors. So Hunter Biden was making nearly 10 times what a director of ExxonMobil makes. Now, listen, I'm from Houston. I actually know a lot of people who are on the boards of natural gas companies. You know what they tend to be? Geologists, geophysicists. They tend to know something about drilling for natural gas. Hunter Biden had zero experience. So look, on its face, gosh, why are you giving a million bucks a year to a guy with no oil and gas experience? And could it be the fact that his daddy is Vice President of the United States? Number two, this goes back to the Biden campaign again. There is video, which I've tweeted out before, you gotta watch the video of Joe Biden bragging, he's really proud of it, he's bragging about how he told the President of Ukraine that he was gonna hold up one billion dollars in foreign aid loan guarantees, $1 billion, almost like Dr. Evil in $1 billion <laughs> until the president of Ukraine fired the prosecutor who was potentially going after the company that was paying his son a $1 million a year. And he's going to interview his son. Now, Joe Biden is on video bragging. He said, six hours later, I got it done. Son of a bitch. He throws that out there. Okay. Joe, you said you got it done. I didn't say you got it done. You said you got it done. Is that a fact, Joe? And what is so bizarre is those facts on any level, they're what they're accusing Donald Trump of doing. Right except at a massive level for potentially personal corruption. Now, look, do I know if there was underlying corruption? No. That's why it's reasonable to investigate it. Is there enough on the face to say, this is kind of fishy? Yes, That means it can't be impeachable for the president to say we should investigate it. And the media, what we just discussed the last five minutes, I challenge any network station to actually air those facts. Because you are actively engaged in a disinformation campaign. And in fact, as we noted a second ago, Stephanopoulos, who was much more reasonable than Chuck Todd was. Stephanopoulos at least let you answer, didn't interrupt you every every five seconds. But Stephanopoulos threw in the obligatory, well, that, of course, has been investigated and rejected. It's like, no, it hasn't been investigated. They didn't call Hunter Biden in the House. They could have. They could have investigated it. The House Republicans wanted to call Hunter Biden. And what did Adam Schiff say? No, you can't call Hunter Biden. Why? See no evil. We don't want to see what happens. We don't care what happened. We're not going to look at it. We're not going to... And the reason this matters, this is the core factual defense of the president. Was there, in fact, prima facie evidence of corruption? I think there was undoubtedly on the face of it, and there may be corruption. And it seems none of the ace investigative reporters in our mainstream media care remotely if there was, in fact, corruption. That's why at the end of the day, the outcome here
0: is transparently obvious to anyone. Let me ask you a couple of questions. I know you have a, a hard stop, but there are a couple of related issues that I want to hit before we let you go. Uh, so when the, the Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee released their impeachment report, it became, it became quite obvious that, that uh, Committee Chairman Adam Schiff had subpoenaed telephone records Involving the ranking member uh, Devin Nunez, records from the president's private attorneys, Rudy Giuliani and Jay Sekulow, and from a journalist uh, named John Solomon, among others. And this strikes me as being a fairly outrageous thing to do, certainly a very dangerous thing to do, yet no one really appears to be talking about it. And I wanted to get your reaction to this. Look, it
1: is part and parcel to how the Democrats in the House handled the entire impeachment. Imagine this in your life. You have a lawyer. A lawyer who is presumably protected by attorney-client privilege. A lawyer who is defending you in some matter, some civil matter, some criminal matter. That relationship, you want to talk about the foundation of our justice system. Look, there there are oppressive legal systems where you don't get a right to a lawyer. You don't have an advocate. You don't have attorney-client privilege. Instead, you have... A star chamber that denies you due process and that tries and convicts you regardless of the facts. The Russian judicial system is very much like that. The Chinese judicial system is very much like that. Oppressive tyrannies know how to do this. To have a House committee chairman subpoenaing the phone records of the president's own lawyers And his colleagues. Devin Nunes is the ranking Republican member on his committee. Not only subpoenaing those phone records, and by the way, reporters, you know, reporters used to care about government seizing the phone records of other reporters. In this instance, this fellow John Solomon, who I don't know, but but he's one of the few reporters who seems willing to actually report on these things. So the media, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What's perfectly fine to go after him. He's not following the talking points. So let the Jack of government come down on him seems to be the position of the media. I, I think it is outrageous. And not only that, by the way, Adam Schiff then leaked that all to the media. So not only did he, did he go and subpoena the records, he then selectively leaked what he thought would be damaging. It actually fits very well into the abuse of power at the Department of Justice and at the FBI. And and John, you and I are both alums of the Department of Justice. Listen, I revere the U.S. Department of Justice. It has a tradition for decades of being nonpartisan, of professionals at, at DOJ, at the FBI, who enforce the law, who follow the law without regard to party. I have said a number of times that one of the worst legacies of the Obama presidency was the deep profound politicization of the Department of Justice and the FBI law enforcement and intelligence in this country we saw things like the Obama IRS targeting American citizens for their political speech because they politically disagreed with the president that's a grotesque abuse of power the inspector general's report is stunning. It's 434 pages. I would encourage folks, read the executive summary. The executive summary I think is about 12 pages. Now it's pretty dense, it's small print and it's pretty dense reading. But it is as chilling an indictment of our federal government as I've ever read. The Inspector General report, and by the way, the Inspector General Michael Horowitz was appointed by Barack Obama He's not some Republican hatchet man. He's an Obama appointee who put out this report, and he details 17 material misstatements that DOJ and the FBI made to the FISA court, the court that, that, that approved a wiretap on Carter Page, an advisor to the Trump campaign. The pattern is stunning. Look, I watched James Comey do an interview on the Sunday show, where he just said, gosh, we were sloppy. No, it's a lot worse than sloppy. It was a deliberate abuse of power. And, so, and the 17 that are detailed, you don't get to say, well, you know, I guess we were just. Did, let me give an the, the, the most stunning one, and this is again something the media doesn't seem to want to cover. The most stunning one described in, in that inspector general report is a lawyer at the FBI deliberately falsified and fabricated evidence. And, and here's what happened. So Carter Page is this foreign policy guy and apparently he talks to a lot of Russians. And that's part of what the case they were making to the FISA court. We want to monitor him. We want to wiretap him because he's talking to a lot of Russians, including some sketchy characters who are Russian. Now, if you're te- asking a court for a warrant to do that, it is at least relevant to know if, when he's talking to the Russians, is he doing so on behalf of the American government like it's a very different inference if he's talking to sketchy people in Russia because the federal government wants him to is he there's fire our spy <laughs> so what does the FBI do they send an email to the CIA they say hey is this guy Carter Page a source for the CIA CIA emails back yes he is a source for the CIA So, the guy going to talk to the Russians apparently was doing so cooperating with the CIA and helping the CIA out. Now, I promise you, 100 out of 100 federal judges, if you're trying to get a wiretap on that guy, would want to know that he was a CIA source because it's central to whether or not you authorize that wiretap. So, you get email from the CIA to the FBI. What does the assistant general counsel do? He goes into the email and he alters it. It says, yes, he was a source. I'm paraphrasing slightly. He types in, no, he was not a source. So it's not a slight alteration. It is 180 degrees opposite. He then takes that fraudulent email. This is the assistant general counsel of the Federal Bureau of Investigation takes that fraudulent email he had just created, he sends it over to DOJ, and they rely on it as the basis for a sworn statement to get the FISA warrant. Now, let me say a couple of things quickly on this. Number one, it is an absolute miracle that the inspector general found this. You want to talk about phenomenal investigatory process. Some investigator, some lawyer, found the original email from the CIA, the forwarded email from the FBI, compared them and said, wait a second, these words aren't the same. That is amazingly careful investigation. Here's a detail that I didn't get to in the hearing last uh, last week because I didn't have time. So the inspector general goes to the assistant general counsel of the FBI. Says, hey, we got these two emails. They're different. How did it change? The inspector general report says the assistant general counsel says, oh, I don't know. I don't know how it changed. So he initially said he had no idea how it changed. And then when they pressed him further, he said, yeah, I did it. I changed it. Now, that individual has been referred, as I understand it, according to the inspector general report for criminal investigation. i got to say, if you or I did this in any legal proceeding, car wreck case, if you're in front of a judge at a car wreck case, and you fraudulently doctor evidence and submit it to the court, I'm telling you right now, you're serving jail time. That was the Federal Bureau of Investigation, because they, they
0: wanted to get Donald Trump that much. So I know you've got to run, but my last question was related to this report, and, and you've answered a lot of it, but there were a couple of other things I just wanted to quickly yep. ask you about. So, one, so John Durham, who's the Connecticut U.S. Yep. attorney who's been assigned by Attorney General Barr to look into whether or not crimes were committed, he, he issued a rather cryptic statement that said, well, Michael Horowitz, you were limited in the universe that you looked at to FBI, DOJ reports, and a couple from the State Department, I'm not so limited. I'm interviewing people from other agencies. I'm interviewing agents in other countries. I'm looking at a lot more documentation. And I disagree with your, uh, or I I don't, I'm not in complete agreement with your statement that there was an adequate factual predication to begin this investigation. So I want to ask you one, what you make of that. And two, how do you think, if at all, this is going to play during the impeachment trial that you're about to undertake?
1: Well, both John Durham and Attorney General Barr put out statements when the IG report came out that were really unusual. They both basically said there's a lot more to come. Um, What the media and the Democratic talking points, although I repeat myself, um, focused on obsessively was a conclusion of the IG report that they did not find documentary evidence of political bias behind the decision to open the investigation. Now, look, I disagree with that particular conclusion, but that particular conclusion is a tiny part of the report. I'm much more interested in the facts that the Inspector General uncovered than the conclusion he may or may not have on that point. I think we can draw inferences. By the way, the 17 material misstatements, every one of them went against Donald Trump,
0: right.
1: which starts to suggest, listen, you pull out a quarter and flip it, the odds are 50-50. The odds of flipping a quarter and getting heads 17 times are less than .001. There was a consistent pattern at every level. And by the way, the key decision makers were virulently partisan. I mean, we have their text messages where they... They loathe Donald Trump and and, and want him to lose. Now, you're entitled to have that view, but you're not entitled to abuse the FBI and Department of Justice. And look, I find it astonishing. So I worked at DOJ under George W. Bush. I worked in the Texas Attorney General's office, as Solicitor General, five and a half years. What's astonishing, listen, if someone came in to your office at DOJ, said, hey, we've got some really serious evidence, and we want to investigate Hillary Clinton, or we want to investigate Bill Clinton, or we want to investigate John Kerry. If the evidence were serious enough, you'd authorize that. But you would certainly have a very serious conversation about, all right, what's the evidence? Where is it coming from? By the way, where is it coming from? One of the, one of the misstatements they never told the FISA court hmm. is this whole steel dossier was paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign in the DNC. And they knew it. And they knew it because a senior official, Associate Deputy Attorney General, which is my old job at DOJ, a guy named Bruce Orr, was literally sleeping with the firm that was developing it. Why? Because his wife worked at Fusion GPS which was the oppo research firm that was being paid by Hillary Clinton's campaign and the DNC to conduct this oppo research, not only to conduct the oppo research, to push it to the press, who was compliantly pushing it out there. And they deliberately and repeatedly didn't tell the court anything about this, that this is oppo research from the political opponent of the campaign we're authorizing. And one question I think is one of the most important to ask that has not yet been, been asked. Who all knew about this up the chain? Let me tell you, in any Department of Justice, so a lot of the report focuses on the kind of mid-level decision makers. But we know the Deputy Director, McCabe, knew about this. We know James Comey, the Director of the FBI, knew about this. How about the Attorney General? What was Loretta Lynch's decision-making role in this? How about John Brennan? How about the national security advisor at the White House? How about President Barack Obama? How about Joe Biden? Were they briefed on this? There seems to be
0: nobody asking these questions. There are a lot of people whose names were unmasked in connection with those. And, And that pattern...
1: There's an element in, in, in which all right. There's, there's a popular meme, irony is dead. Irony truly is dead. You've got reporters clutching their pearls and say it is outrageous to investigate your political opponent. Well, the Obama administration did that. In this instance, we have a phone transcript where Trump said, hey, do us a favor, investigate this, this, this corruption. Sadly, Ukraine didn't investigate it. It appears nothing came from it. It's why they can't prove bribery. It's why they can't prove quid pro quo. Bribery takes an agreement. The testimony in the House is the Ukrainians didn't even know about this stuff. That's why they can't prove bribery, because they're looking at the elements of the offense going, wait a second, we don't meet the elements of the offense. That's a problem. But you know what? There was an administration that ordered, okay, one of the talking points now is, aha, there are no spies. James Comey said, I'm vindicated. We didn't spy on the Trump campaign. You know, in Texas, sometimes I go to farms and ranches, And let me just say what James Comey said on that, you can find in most farms and ranches out in the prairie. The Inspector General report describes how they sent four confidential human sources to spy on the Trump campaign, wearing a wire, taping the Trump campaign, including, by the way, they say a senior advisor, a senior leader of the Trump campaign who wasn't implicated. They don't say who that is, but that's presumably someone... Let me tell you, if the FBI is sending confidential human sources wearing a wire to tape you, yes, you're being spied on. (laughs) And if they are setting up a wiretap of an advisor to your campaign, yes, you are being spied on, and no amount of media spinning or Democratic spinning can change that. And... When you read the Inspector General report, it makes me angry for all of the dedicated professionals at the FBI and DOJ seeing their institutions treated like the repository for the most effective oppo research in the history of politics. Look, oppo research is not new in politics. What's new is having the FBI able to send in spies with wires to go and get wiretaps to go push your opo your research. But it also makes me angry because it's evident that the senior leadership believed they'd never be held for to account. One of the reasons why you or I, if that had happened at DOJ, would have said, we better make sure everything's right, because you know your career and potentially your freedom, not in being incarcerated, hangs in the balance of did you cross every T and dot every I? And this was... The best defense of it is it was grossly negligent and incompetent. But it's cavalier. They didn't give a damn because they hated Donald Trump and so, sure. Go do it. And and, and that, and you know what? They were certain Hillary Clinton would win and one of their buddies would be de- uh, attorney general and another buddy would be running the FBI and so nobody would ask. They behaved like this because they believed nobody would ever examine what their conduct was. That is a deeply dismaying abuse of power. Um, I don't, House Democrats don't care at all. They haven't had a hearing on it, they they haven't investigated it, they don't care. And I see no indication Senate Democrats care either. But I do think the end result of this, we're going to have a hearing, a trial. It's gonna be a fair trial. Both sides are gonna be allowed to present their case and then the, pre- the, the, the verdict will be not guilty. How can I say that? Because they haven't proven their case. They haven't alleged a high crime or misdemeanor. The constitutional standard matters. By the way, if, if they had alleged bribery, if they'd proven bribery, bribery is a high crime or misdemeanor. If they had facts and could prove up bri- bribery, that would be a very different outcome. But they don't have the evidence for that. And given the articles they're voting on, this, the chances that this is thrown out after a fair trial are 100% because they haven't met their case. And by the way, and this is a good thing to wrap up on, okay, so there's a popular talking point in the last 48 hours, which is, are Republican senators going to follow your oath? Usually said with great indignation. Will you follow your oath? You make a challenge to the reporters here. Have you asked a single Democrat that? Have you asked any Democrat that? Elizabeth Warren will be a a juror in this trial. Have any of you asked Elizabeth Warren, are you going to follow your oath? Listen, the House managers could show up in grass skirts with hula hoops and yodel, and Elizabeth Warren would vote to convict. But yet no reporters asking Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or any of the Democrats, are you going to follow your oath? They're all going to vote to convict, except maybe Joe Manchin, maybe a couple of others. But every Democrat running for president is going to vote to convict. Why? Because of partisan rage and they hate Donald Trump and it doesn't matter. By the way, they wanted to impeach him before they knew about Ukraine. Ninety-three House Democrats voted to impeach him because he criticized the so-called squad. And so I'll tell you what following your oath as a senator is is actually following the law which is requiring that the constitutional standard be met of high crimes and misdemeanors and this ain't it.
0: But these are the days we're living in. Senator, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank <laughs> you.